0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: Welcome into the Lions 24-7 podcast. Tyler Hugh and Sean Fitz coming to you from Happy Valley where the temperatures are dropping, the leaves are changing, and Penn State football players are putting on full pads that's right. This week we're going to see the start of a true preseason practice session, and uh, really whatever that looks like here in 2020, leading up to that October 24th weekend kickoff. And now I'm specifying weekend, Sean, because Indiana came out yesterday, and uh, doesn't sound like they know if they're going to be hosting a game on a Friday or a Saturday for that kickoff against Penn State. So we'll start referring to that as a October 24th weekend instead of specifically October 24th. I'm not changing the countdown clock though; we've done that too many times. But Sean. This is a week we've been waiting for since we got the uh, the news that the Big Ten was going to return to the football field uh, when we heard from Sandy Barber and James Franklin, and, and they told us that September 30th was the date where the pads were going on. Fully um, an important one. It's been a long time since last December when, when you had a team that was, you know, in, in some kind of real contact periods uh, leading up to the Cotton Bowl. A lot to catch up on, a, a lot to catch up on with a new coaching staff as well. And, uh, you know, I'm just excited to, to, to get into these next few days. We're going to have media days and, and learn a lot more about this team in a hurry after several months of kind of just peeking in from, from far away and not really having a, a, a full structured idea of what this depth chart could be shaping up as uh, it's going to start to take form now
0: once you decided to go full speed ahead with that countdown you were just locked in right i mean that's uh, yes anything to mess with that but yeah friday saturday uh, I mean, just w- we keep moving toward it. And that's the uh, that's the main goal. Um So, yeah, but it's going to be an interesting. What is it? End of September, early, you know, early October. It's going to be great. I mean, putting the pads on for the first time, trying this whole preseason practice thing again. Of course, they've been working out for the last couple of weeks, but, you know, it's a different sort of format. It's different. You know, there's a lot of things that diff- that are different. Our media day is going to be different on Wednesday. It's going to be all on Zoom. You mentioned we're going to see this team. I don't expect to see this team. I don't expect us to really come in contact with them. I don't expect us to see them in person, maybe you know on a game day or something like that. And even that's going to be uh, a bit of a cluster to get You, me, Mark, Brennan, whoever, uh, you know, into the building or whatnot. So it'll be a a very interesting uh, change of scenery for us, but it'll be a welcome one because we're talking about football. We have a a nice little rundown here that's all about football. It's uh, it feels good, man. Feels good.
1: Yeah, we had a lot of recruiting talk at the end of last week. We're going to move on and focus on the tenth-ranked Penn State Nittany Lions, and yes, tenth ranked. That's what the we Big can 10. do. We can talk about <laughs> rankings. Perfect. The perfect. The Big Ten is back in the AP Top 25, along with a, a, just one Pac-12 program, Oregon. Um, it was apparently uh, left up to the voters' discretion, as always. But uh, there was a, a debate in place about whether or not Big Ten programs should be featured on there. Although SEC programs were featured on there, and the weeks preceding their return to the football field. What we got to work with initially here is Ohio State at number six. That's down from number two in the preseason poll. Penn State at number 10. That's down from number seven in the preseason poll. Wisconsin's also down to 19. Michigan's down to 23. Iowa, Minnesota no longer ranked there's going to be a lot of fluctuation in these rankings the next few weeks before Penn state even reaches the field. And this is about the biggest sign of a return to normalcy that I've experienced in 2020, Sean, the petty arguments about, about rankings that at this case are still preseason rankings for Penn State. It's
0: great because usually we wait until October or what the end of October for the the college football playoff rankings. Now we get to do it with the AP poll, we can do it with the coaches poll, we await those college football playoff uh, uh eventual rankings that come out. So, I mean, this is great. Just a couple solid bunch of bitching is is really all we ask about <laughs> is really all we ask for. So, I mean, I don't care. You shouldn't care. It's it's very uh, interesting. There was a there was a thing on twenty four seven sports. I believe Steve Hellwagon reached out to a bunch of guys that didn't vote for Big Ten games, and you know some some of the the responses make sense. It's like I'm not going to rank a team that hasn't played, which we do every year with preseason rankings. <laughs> right. But when you have uh, schools that are going to have six seven games in before they play, that kind of makes sense. Worrying about it does not make sense. I mean, Penn State is going to do what they can. Number 10, even with some, uh, even while being left off of some ballots, uh, you know, that's fine. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. And, and as we saw this past weekend, Anything can happen to start this season. It's it's we've already gotten a, a huge uh, dose of crazy for the you know Mississippi State beating LSU. Some other uh, uh, Oklahoma, obviously that's uh, a very big one. Um, I mean it's just been it's been fun to sort of have that distraction. It's been fun to get that way. And if we're gonna do it by talking about rankings, that's you know what that's fine with me.
1: Yeah, we said back in July when, when things were looking pretty bleak about the season actually coming to fruition. And ultimately, uh, you know, a few weeks later, that was justified because the Big Ten pulled the plug for a while. But we said back then, if we can get into November, December, and and we're all just having these ridiculous arguments about who should be the number five team, number four team, um, that'd be great. That would be awesome. We'd love to get there. And, and we're steps closer to, to getting there at this stage. Last year, I think the, the rankings came out like right around Halloween, and at this stage this year, you're still not going to have a single game played for, for the Pac-12, which has been far and wide absent from the college football playoff conversation, but Oregon maybe this year viewed as a team that could be in the mix. For the record, here's the teams that uh, that that are ahead of Penn State. Clemson dominating first place votes with 55 of them. They're at number one. Alabama has three first place votes at number two, followed by Florida and Georgia out of the SEC. Notre Dame at number five. They're dealing with uh, an issue with COVID cases on, on, across their roster right now. Ohio State falls to number six. They still got four first-place votes, which is next behind Clemson. Then Auburn, Miami, Texas, and Penn State. Miami and Texas, everyone's always quick to anoint them as being back uh, Texas had a heck of a scare uh, against a Texas Tech team that I don't think is very good at all last week. Uh, meanwhile, Miami lumped up a Florida State team that we know is not good at all and really, really bad team. We're going to get into a lot of the national conversation, big picture college football stuff a little bit later here on the show with Chris Hummer, who covers the national scene, also covers the transfer portal for 24-7 sports. We had him on back in 2019. I thought this would be a good episode to get him on before we have these Penn State media days and really fully shift focus into the Penn State school squad uh, from top to bottom, and we're going to do state of the positions, Sean, uh, starting today at running back, but it was good to get Chris on before that because it catches up on every uh, on everybody up on where the college football uh, process is standing right now. There's a lot of new personnel developments because of what 2020 has brought us, and that can have long-term ramifications, and, and there's also just a lot to catch up on, on on the first few weeks of action, some upsets and all that, so Chris is going to help us go through that and really set the stage to, to get into a lot more Penn State later in the week because media days are not just Wednesday. We're used to it being a one-day deal and we go out onto the Beaver Stadium field and talk to all these guys for for like an hour. That ain't happening and we don't know when we're going to actually physically be near any players, but it's going to get a chance to work Zoom hard in the next 72 hours and hopefully come away with a bunch of of new uh, information and and a lot more insight. We have not spoken to any Penn State players on the record um, through media availability since July, so we have a lot to catch up on.
0: Wow, that is uh, quite a stat. I didn't realize it had been that long, but you know the days kind of run together. It's good to get the coaches. We've gotten a couple of the coordinators on the radio show the last couple of weeks, but you know Q and A. You know a little bit different sort of questions than than come from Steve Jones, come from the media. So be interesting to hear about some guys what they think. Be interesting to maybe finally write the final Micah story about him not coming back. So um, it'll be uh, you know plenty. We'll, we'll have plenty to talk about. Now. And check out the site Alliance twenty four seven all week
1: still no punctuation mark at the end of the Micah Parsons Saga although I did again for like at least the third time saw him plugging his cameo uh profile up on uh on Twitter recently so you should reach out to him <laughs> on cameo and have him make a statement about that and you know
0: I was and thinking the that, 50 bucks or whatever and yeah I was maybe thinking get, about, that, get the story out of there
1: I was thinking about reaching out to Micah throwing that throwing the 50 dollars for the cameo and having him promote the podcast uh you know and and, and we'll see where that goes but we'll, we'll let him make a decision and and there's a lot of fun that you can have with the Micah thing but I I know people are hanging on to the hope that he may be back. And, and, and so we'll let that hope linger until we're told not to. I feel like his advertising rates might be a little bit higher than 50
0: bucks for the cameo. So you yeah. know, maybe, maybe we'll get that for the podcast. Maybe not. It's hard to say.
1: We'll see. But, but in the meantime, um, again, we're going to have a ton of content coming up online 24-7 uh, in the next few days. We'll have video of some of these conversations, and we'll, of course, have a bunch of writing uh, about what we're hearing, uh, who's who's looking good, who's going to be on the verge of a breakout. And there's just a lot to learn about the relationships that have been built between the new coaching staff members and these players. And, and you know we've, we're really curious to, to hear how Things have gone from the point where the Big Ten postponed the season to where the Big Ten put the season back on because guys left campus, guys came back. I think that we're going to have a lot of anecdotes coming our way in the next few days about what has transpired uh, to get these guys back onto the football field. But we're excited to write about that again. Fully padded practices uh, coming back to the Big Ten this week. Uh, more on that in episode two and the episodes to follow into early October. But we're going to get underway with this assessment of positions across the board with our state of the position series. We're going to kick off with with one that seems like it has a lot of known variables because of what we saw on the football field last year and because of the way the program has recruited that is the running back position Uh, gone from this mix is Ricky Slade uh, transferred over to Old Dominion reunited with Ricky Ronnie former offensive coordinator at Penn State a uh, guy who was a composite five star, a uh, guy who came in w- with fanfare of his own, and and entered last season as a starter. Uh, didn't work out for him because part of that is Journey Brown, the projected starter here in twenty twenty. What a finish he had last year, Sean. Really stole the spotlight uh, in, in a team that you know we looked at KJ Hamler to be the playmaker. Uh, It was Journey Brown by the end of the season that was the main playmaker in this offensive attack. He had 593 rushing yards and nine touchdowns in the final five games of 2019. Uh, Who can forget his performance uh, against Memphis in the Cotton Bowl? 202 rushing yards. That's a Penn State postseason record. He was the offensive MVP. They blew it out the water with Tyler Bowen calling plays in the Cotton Bowl, Sean. 396 rushing yards. Noah Cain returned from injury, got in the act. Devin Ford got in the end zone in that game. We're going to get to all these guys, but the conversation begins with the man uh, who stole the show last year: Redshirt Junior Journey Brown.
0: And I don't think there's much question about that. I think that you know Journey Brown did what he did to to secure that. And you know we're talking about him more in the off season as a pro prospect than we're talking about him as a you know a potential guy that could lose the starting job to Noah Cain, who they think is very good as well. So. I think it'll be very interesting to see how they balance these carries. I don't know that there's any set uh, sort of percentage or anything like that. I think those guys are the two main guys. Uh, of course, Devin Ford's in there. But Devin Ford, of course, had some offseason trouble. So it'll be interesting to see where he starts the year. But yeah, you're right. Journey Brown just took it and did it as a receiver, did it as a running back, um, has you know some work to do on his pass protection because he is a running back and that's what running backs always have to work on. Um, but no, I'm really excited to see what he's able to do, especially when you add Kurt Shiraka to the mix. He's a guy that has dedicated himself to running the football. Uh, I know that it's you know it's kind of a different setup than, uh, than Minnesota, but you've got uh, some serious weapons there in the backfield. And I would be surprised if Journey Brown was not uh, the, the guy that you see the most often coming out of this. So really excited to see what he brings to the table. I don't think there's much uh, debate. I don't think there's much, uh, I guess, kind of... Uh, you know stress on this position or anything like that of course injuries may happen this is a position that we've seen that in the past but at the same time this is a really good room man i mean we talked about uh, starting this this series on Quarterback, and you know we we covered quarterback in the mailbag a, a week or two ago, so I do suggest you you find that out. But running back was just the uh, the the absolute no brainer for us to start with this. So um, there's so much talent in that room. Love Journey Brown, love Noah Kane. You know I love Devin Ford, even though he got in trouble. And then the freshman uh, certainly have some something to say about that as well. So. It, it's just a, it's just a spot where they've recruited so exceptionally well and they continue to do so. It's, it's really incredible how far this room has come. And I know it, it's had Saquon Barkley, it's had Miles Sanders, but before that, you know, there's a long way, no offense from, from starting, you know, Bill Belton and, uh, what was, uh, Ryan Day was a guy that started a game for Penn State. So they've come a long, long way in the last, uh, seven, eight years in building this room.
1: 2016 2017 carries absolutely dominated by Saquon Barkley uh, for all the right reasons. The following year it was the Miles Sanders show. There was that game against Ohio State where no other running back actually touched the ball. Uh, that kind of typified what that year was like as the bell cow for Miles Sanders before he went off to the NFL after his first year as a starter. Last year things changed in a big way. We wondered if maybe Ricky Slade would have a chance to 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 take on that kind of role and get it in a stranglehold. We learned really fast that wasn't going to be the case. It would be this guy for two series another guy for two series it was maddening at times and you wondered if ultimately if that rotation was holding back the offense at others but it gave you a chance to see what you had to work with and let's not forget where this thing looked like it was headed back in October it looked like it was going to be Noah Kane totally taking over the 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 process Uh, he went off against uh, against Purdue and then against Iowa back-to-back 100-yard games Remember that Iowa game? He was the guy they were turning to to put that one away in the fourth quarter. It was carry after carry, churning out the yards, moving the chains. That's what they love about this kid. He doesn't lose yards, always seems to fall forward. Franklin would mention that after a lot of post game press conferences. Uh, You know, goes for 15, uh, 15 touches, totaling 130 yards then against Purdue. And you think this is his job to lose. And ultimately, he ends up being your starter on the road at Michigan State. Major opportunity. First offensive series gets hurt, and then we don't see him for uh, essentially all of November. He he would be out there in pregame warm-ups, just wasn't to the spot, And, and the coaching staff really had to make it clear to him, Let's not all focus on 2019 and what we have in front of us in November. Let's you know, let's remember what Noah Kane has ahead of him in 2020, 2021 and beyond. This is a guy who when he committed to Penn State and signed with them over the Texas Longhorns back in December 2018, made it a point to say several times that he would be spending 3 years at Penn State. He has long-term ambitions. He's a guy who's been on the recruiting radar since his freshman year in high school and ultimately with Kane um, I think it just, it's just because of the way Brown finished, you can kind of forget where it just felt like uh, common sense at that point that this was going to be Noah Kane taking over the, the bell cow role and everyone was going to take a back seat. And then they emerged in November. Kane was not available. Journey Brown was. And starting with that Minnesota game, the whole dynamic changed.
0: Yeah. Journey Brown just took it and ran with it. And obviously no pun intended, but really, I mean, he was, I guess, basically one of your very few viable options against Ohio State, and the, the, everybody remembers the Cotton Bowl, but down that stretch, I mean, you just felt every time he got the ball, he had a chance, and that was playing with some some pretty high-level teams, so uh, it was it was really fun to watch. It obviously vaulted him up NFL draft boards. I, I Again, I, I don't think we see him after this season. I think there was a chance, you know, if it did get Pumped to the spring or something like that, that we may not have seen him at all. Um, but it's uh, it's been very interesting to watch the the development of Journey Brown. It, I mean, you think back to last summer; um, he was not on campus. He was he was back home working out, suspended from campus for the summer. Was able to come back and rejoin the team uh, in, in August. But still, I mean, you you had no expectations for him. Uh, Noah Kane obviously did some big things. Slade was the starter, but uh, the the way that that rotation played out could not obviously didn't work out for Slade but could not have worked out better for Journey Brown by the end of the season clicking on all cylinders and he was he was just phenomenal I mean and and really you think about Journey Brown as this track guy out there running and you know he's obviously a very very fast guy but still I mean he's throwing off Memphis defenders he's throwing off a bunch of other defenders running through running inside out uh really can do so much for your offense and when you when you're able to do that not only with Journey Brown, but to, to counter that with a Noah Kane to bring in a, Devin, a skilled guy like Devin Ford. I mean, you just give yourself so many options. And Kirk Sciarocca, I'm really, really interested to see what he can bring to the table. He, he was able to use multiple backs at Minnesota. Um, again, you, you don't want to lean on one guy. I mean, in, in today's college football, you want to go with three guys, basically. And you know who two of those guys are, and it'll be interesting to see where the third guy goes.
1: You maximize the talent in that backfield. And, and as Chris Hummer will tell us uh, later when we have him on, he believes this this very well. Maybe the best backfield in college football in terms of depth and, and talent, and that's a testament to the recruiting. It's a testament to the, the development that J. Juan Sider uh, has done in that room, and he he said it this spring. Uh, Journey Brown has not just discarded the track guy label. He has thrown it down and stomped on it and, and moved forward as a, as a complete kind of back and go back and look at what he did in the Cotton Bowl, throwing guys to the turf, ripping defenders off of him on the way to the end zone. It was just a remarkable transformation that we saw take place, and his confidence grew and grew. Um, And you mentioned uh, Kirk Scirocco and the willingness to to share the wealth a little bit there in the backfield. Go back to last year at Minnesota. Rodney Smith was the primary ball carrier, uh, approached 1,200 yards on 228 carries. But you had three different running backs in that Minnesota offense, exceed 400 rushing yards, uh, three different guys averaging more than five yards per carry. And two, uh, Ibrahim Ibrahim and Smith both go for seven and eight rushing touchdowns, respectively. So it's not like Kirk Sciarocca is going to have to reimagine what he wants to do with the backfield. I think in coordination and conjunction uh, with Jaywan Sider, they're going to find a rhythm that works for them. You'd like to think that that'll be a quicker and smoother process and kind of how we saw it work out last September. Um, And then Devin Ford, not to be the forgotten man here. And and as you said, off-field issue that popped up here late in the summer heading into the season. Going to be curious to see how James Franklin is going to handle that, not just with Devin, but other guys who are involved there. But he had 107 rushing yards in his first game. That's the first time a Nittany Lions freshman went over 100 rushing yards since 1979 some guy named Kurt Warner did that that's a long time I know it was against Idaho and I know we didn't see a ton of Devin beyond that and and, and Sider talked about how you know he kind of had to you know recalibrate a little bit over the first uh, year on campus and, and and by the end of it though Sider will tell you he feels like this kid has some of the uh, the smoothest footwork smoothest tips that that he has seen at the position he feels like Devin Ford is going to be playing on Sundays someday and and there's no reason to doubt that like Kane in the spotlight almost immediately at the high school level Uh, tons of options on the table picks penn state Um, and i know we're going to get to it in a second but that's the first of two straight years where you get a a blue chip tandem at running back and it then you remember journey brown was uh, you know an afterthought for a lot of folks a late addition to his recruiting class and very much juxtaposed to the guys who were in that room with him Uh, many of them had offers on the table power five level offers well before their sophomore year in the season when you talk about the other four scholarship backs in this roster. And Devin Ford is is
0: tremendously talented. I mean, there's no question about that whatsoever. Um, But as we saw last year, the counterpoint to this is you can be very talented because I think Ricky Slade's a very talented back. You can be very talented and also find yourself on the outside looking in. Now, he had that, uh, you know, the the hiccup in the offseason. Obviously, Um, I wouldn't expect to see him early in this season. That's just based on what we've seen in a similar situation from the past. And, you know, I mm-hmm. Uh, that, that could be a very bad thing for Devin Ford because if you've got guys like Kevon Lee like Kazaya Holmes sort of barking up your tree you know that could be that could be an issue down the road so uh, I, I think the world of Devin Ford in terms of his talent I think you know the, the, he's a guy that would start at a lot of spots I think that's how talented he is but when you've got those two guys you got your your essentially your your one speed bell cow I guess in, in Journey Brown and your, your other one that's going to carry the load in Noah Kane that's a lot to overcome so we'll see uh, really see what Devin Ford's made of. I mean, he's got a lot of sort of adversity. I know a lot of that's you know on his plate because of <laughs> of his choices, but he's got a lot of adversity coming his way. We're gonna see what how he handles that and if he can get back out into that race. Uh, and like I said, if he's got the ball in his hands, he's he's a very, very good player. Um, he's just gotta be able to to, to carve out that niche and get that ball in his hands and do do what he can.
1: I had a chance after the combo last year to, to just kind of pass the mic around um, between journey Brown. who was coming off a phenomenal performance and, and Devin Ford and, and Noah Kane. And what's, stood out to me even with Ricky Slade then was how much at peace they were with, with sharing that load and 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 it's not it wasn't surprising ultimately to see Slade make the move and toward the exit door and end up somewhere else and I think he's got a chance to to do big things at the college level still but uh, I think Ford learned a lot about himself last year I know Kane shared the load in the IMG Academy backfield with with a five-star and Trey Saunders but you learn something about yourself when, when you go from that high school level to the college level and you're not the one getting the bulk of the carries and, and some games you're waiting on the sideline just hoping Jay one Slater is going to turn your way and say get in there for a series and try to make the most of that and it felt like last year uh, you know, it was a lot on the line every time one of these guys got to check in whether it was uh, for a nine play drive or a three and out they stood to gain or lose a lot and I, and I think they were going to have a pretty clear understanding of where they stand it's an eight game schedule not a lot of time to try to, 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 to work this thing and 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 reevaluated game in, game out. I'm really curious to see what the flow looks like. How long are we going to see Brown on the field before we see Kane? How long before we see Ford? As you said, that may be something that's not available. But also, how quickly are we going to see the freshmen? We saw them burn two red shirts last year. There is no such thing as burning red shirts this year because there is no such thing as that eligibility clock ticking down. And we're actually going to talk about that in the mailbag. But that puts the focus on Keevon Lee, Kaziah Holmes, Holmes got on campus in January, a guy who uh, J1 Slater talked about being on the Florida Gator staff and offering this kid as a wide receiver very early in his high school career, uh, ends up committing to Penn State. Uh, big Saquon Barkley fan, he considers him his idol, and he will be the first to wear number twenty-six on offense since Saquon Barkley left back in twenty seventeen. And then Kevon Lee shows up in the summer. Um and he's a kid that that as you told me before we got on this podcast, hearing good early returns on him and, and you just wonder, are these guys going to shake up things? We think we know the, the top three here with Brown and Kane and Ford. But man, don't count out the, the the next duo uh that that's trying to work their way up this thing. It's really interesting because these guys are
0: kind of coming from different backgrounds. You had Kaziah Holmes who was, you know, a wildcat quarterback plus, you know, they he kind of did everything. He's got receiver tape, he's got all this kind of stuff and he was phenomenal. Got here in January, people just raved about his work ethic and things like that. And then you've got Kevon Lee who really didn't play as a senior because of some eligibility issues with his transfer, you know, held up his enrollment. He didn't get here until August and and really kind of a wild card of that 2020 class because you really had no idea what you were getting with Kevon Lee he got here and it did not take him long to make an impression and you know for speaking from some people in the program would not be surprised if Kevon Lee was actually in front of Keziah Holmes right now which is kind of saying something and Lee Lee's a kid that came in he's a big kid if you like big backs and I know a lot of Penn State fans love their big backs Kivon Lee's gonna be that guy he's gonna be 240 245 pounds and he really hasn't lifted in his in his life so he's a guy that honestly is just a, a blank slate you're not sure how he's gonna take to the weight program but he's got all this physical prowess to go with it uh, just sort of natural raw strength and things like that so I'm really really interested to see what happens with Kevon Lee and as you mentioned it's a it's a green like for everybody in in nature I guess uh with with the eligibility questions or the eligibility standards in place this year. So, I wouldn't be surprised. I, as I mentioned, if Devin Ford is is playing to start the season, um it, it's hard to say where he'll be compared to uh, guys like Yvonne Lee and Kaziah Holmes, but I'm I'm really interested to see these guys. I, like I said, when he when when Holmes came in in January, they said a lot of really good things right off the bat about him. Put on I think 10 pounds was up around 215-220. Then Lee got here, and you know some of that some of that chatter on because uh, Holmes went down, some of it on Lee went up, and and they're excited about both those guys. As we mentioned, they've recruited incredibly well at this running back position. Some of those guys have been sort of sprayed all over. I mean, all four star guys with the exception of Journey Brown, but sort of uh, you know just kind of all over the place in terms of rankings. So uh, it'll be fun to see how these guys develop because it's just a ton of talent. And I think it gives you the, the flexibility and we're not getting into recruiting right now, but it gives you the flexibility not to take one in 2021 and see what you can get in 2022 because who knows what the room will look like at that point, but I think
1: it's going to be talented. And if you heard our conversation with Keevon Lee here on the podcast a couple months ago, uh, they've been working their way towards this competition for a long time. They talked about being on campus at Florida State, and this will be more bad news for Seminoles fans to hear, but if they're listening for whatever reason, but Holmes and Lee were on campus there for a visit. It was right before Holmes was going to make his decision, and they both knew they were going to Penn State, and they acknowledged it together while on a visit uh, at, at Florida State facilities. So that's a long time in the works, more than a year to get to this point where you now they're fighting to be the next Noah Campbell. Uh, on this roster. And by the way, I, I mentioned Ford being the first since the 1970s to go for 100 in his opening game. I neglected to mention Noah Kane broke the Penn State freshman rushing touchdown record last year with eight scores. So both those guys came in, made their mark. We'll see what, what awaits them. And then you got Holmes and Lee to work with. And 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 Holmes listed at 215. You referenced this. We'll see if we get an updated roster this week. But they've already got Lee above 220. I, I'm curious to see if he's above 230 even. Uh, he told us that LSU was among the the schools that were looking at him as a linebacker, wasn't interested in playing defense, wanted to focus in on running back. But that says something when you've got a, a program at the elite caliber in the SEC looking at you to play linebacker. It says a lot about his athleticism and, and also a lot about the way uh, he approaches contact and his physicality. So different styles of play here, but it's a big running back group overall. you got Noah Cain pushing 230 at this point. Journey Brown's really changed his body up. And and Evan Ford still under 200 pounds, uh, easily the slightest among this group. And in this State of Position series that we're starting today, this is what would you say
0: this is the most homer that we're going to be about a position group. I mean, it's just a I think it's the top group on the roster. Tight ends obviously up there as well, but yeah. yeah, yeah, this is this is one where, you know, you're, you no matter who you pick, you're going to have a shot. So, uh, be interested to see that. And then you add the dynamic of adding Kirk Chiraco there. Uh it, last year at Minnesota, you take sacks out of it. They ran the ball about 40 times a game. That's a lot of runs. They averaged about 5.3 yards per carry when you, you know, take sa- the adjusted sack totals and everything like that. That's got to, you know, that's got to sound good to Penn State's backs, especially when you bring back a, an experienced offensive line. that has been pretty good at, at run blocking. So be uh, very interesting to see what uh what Kirk Scirocco has to work with. I'm sure that,
1: you know, he's got some some things up his sleeve and I'm excited to see it mentioned this earlier three running backs got more than 70 carries for minnesota last year all of them averaged above five yards per touch so uh, that, and should not, we sorry. talk
0: about and should we talk about will levis in this too because that's part of the running game as well right i mean, I mean he, seth
1: he, green right seth, seth green in minnesota five rushing touchdowns last year and and the year before he was kind he's kind of their goal line back at times and and we know will levis he likes to drop that thor hammer and, and maybe we'll get a chance to see him utilize like that
0: would be very very surprised if they didn't uh you know seth green for the, for those who didn't really pay attention to minnesota last year he he was their wildcat quarterback he was sort of their hammer there and uh you know it's very similar when you put those profiles side by side very similar athletes very uh big guys that are tough to take down so i know people get frustrated with the uh the red zone packages and things like that but kirk shiraka has had some success with that with with seth green at minnesota
1: following up on our uh you know talking about these two true freshman running backs in holmes and lee a timely five-star mailbag question here and we're getting the mailbag ahead of uh, Chris Hummer, who we're going to get to in a moment, to talk about more big-picture college football stuff. Stick around uh, for that conversation. We we do talk about Penn State. We do talk about the Big Ten. I asked him who he thought the most overrated and underrated teams were in the conference. to so hear all that, but there's a lot as well, just about what the NCAA is dealing with in 2020, and Chris does a great job breaking that down. But first and foremost, our mailbag question today, Sean, um, with the NCAA eligibility clock on pause, will all freshmen have the green light this season for Penn State, Or will there still be some that James Franklin considers yellow or red in 2020? I mean, yes. Technically, everyone's going to have
0: the green light because there's there's no... Harmon playing these guys from an eligibility standpoint, they're not going to lose any time. It's nice to get these guys out there to to get some experience. And as I said to Tyler before the uh, before the episode, a quarter of the schedule is Maryland and Rutgers this year, so you get an opportunity. What a line! To ma- yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Um, but but you get an opportunity to get some of these guys out there if you do have a blowout win where you you have the you know a great time to get uh, an offensive lineman out there with a the new group or something like that. I mean you're still you're still going about this as hey these guys are going to contribute these guys are going to be our green light guys that are going to get some reps these guys are going to be, be ones that we want to play on special teams. I think that's probably the most interesting dynamic is you've got guys as we saw a couple of years ago with with a guy like Jesse Lucchetta, who ex- exclusively played on special teams. Now you've got guys, big guys that can run like Zariah Fisher, like Tyler Elsden, guys that you can put on coverage teams and doesn't doesn't cost you anything. So I, I'm excited to see, you know, what kind of? So you would probably take a guy like Zariah Fisher, who is your red shirt guy at linebacker. Probably it's hard to say because you know, especially without Micah, because you're shifting numbers and everything like that. But just for for. Uh, you know, for for purposes of the drill, you're talking about a guy who you maybe want to play with play four games like a Tyler Rudolph last year. Now you've got eight games, and you can put them on your kick team. You can put them on your your punt coverage team or something like that. Get them some experience, and it you know it's perfectly fine. You don't you don't lose the year. So, but I still see guys that are in that yellow aspect. Some of it's position related. Some of it is is, is talent related. I mentioned Fisher and Elsdon. Uh, Kaziah Izard's a guy that's probably like that. You look back at last year, and the guy that was sort of on that line is Hakeem Beeman. He did end up redshirting, but I think he played in four games last year. So I think Izzard is a guy that's impressed since he's gotten here and you could see him potentially breaking through. Granted, there's 26 uh, defensive tackles on scholarship, so it might be a little bit tough. So we'll see where he goes with that. Enzo Jennings in there, um, Joseph Johnson also in the defensive backfield. Will these guys be big enough? Will these guys be able to go? Because as we saw last year, uh, going back to Tyler Rudolph, Rudolph, you know, was a pretty put together prospect. But once you put those pads on and get him into a, and around other college players, they certainly seem to look small. And I think Joseph Johnson's probably going to fit in that mix. Very skinny when he came in. Of course, he was a little banged up when he came in as well. Enzo Jennings is in there. Norval Black, the junior college transfer, is in there as well. So these guys that are right on the fence, I mean, you, you can play them and there's no uh, real issue. So th- those would probably be my yellow guys. My red guys, the offensive linemen, are going to redshirt. I mean, that's that would happen in a, in a typical year. And most of that defensive line, I mean, Cole Brevard and Fatuma Malba and, and Bryce Mastella, especially a guy that we've talked about a few times on the podcast. I mean, they're they're a year or two away from from trying to contribute. Micah Bowens, of course, you've got a bunch of quarterbacks in the roster ahead of him, um, but the, those green light guys, I think, would have stayed the same regardless. Curtis Jacobs, Theo Johnson, uh, Lambert and Washington, the wide receivers and Jair Brown, the, the junior college uh, safety, I think can contribute right away. Maybe not uh, going to unseat a starter or anything like that, but can be in the two deep. And hey, since you don't have to worry about walking that line like you did maybe with an Anthony Wigan last year or something like that. Now, all of a sudden you can play him and you have uh, three more years of him.
1: I think of some recent years where you got guys to four games and there was a structured plan. And, and last year, Caden Wallace and Lance Dixon fell into this category where they were initially given that green light. And then they said, are these special teams reps going to be worth burning red shirts for? And, and, and the staff said no. Um, and a couple of years ago, Jason, no you got your fill of those four games, and 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 but boy, would you have loved to maybe you know rack up some more reps for Jason over the course of his first year on campus? But you didn't want to lose that year of eligibility for a guy that you knew had you had a lot of work to do on. Um, now I, I'm really curious who's going to have a chance to go out there and and with that maybe expanded opportunity uh, show some to the staff that maybe they didn't think they'd see in a game setting and maybe convinces you to, to shuffle things up a little bit. And, uh, and it's going to be curious because again, this is eight games. So much of these, uh, these early auditions were taking place, you know, in the second half of, of games where you were already up by four or five touchdowns. And there's a lot more room, uh, to be flexible with your roster and start getting longer looks at guys and get film on guys. This year, you open at the Road at Indiana, a game that we've talked about uh, repeatedly as being tricky, and then you come back to Ohio State. I don't see a lot of room in those games to, to toy around too much. Uh, so I, you know, that's going to be interesting. And, and, and a got, you know, there's a spot at wide receiver with it, with the bodies you brought in at wide receiver and the, the unknown, uh, aspect of that position in terms of guys who've actually gone out there and done it in game action. Maybe that's a spot where you look at with this group and a guy that otherwise you would assume would be red light all the way or yellow light at the very least gets a chance to go out there and, in some games and, 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 proves that he should be part of that rotation. Um, you know, I don't know who it'll be. I, you know, Malik Mega is fascinating to me. I think this will be very early to see him make an impact in 2020, but, uh, you know, he's the kind of guy that, that maybe gets a little bit of a look and, and takes it. It's, it's, it's not just who's going to get those reps and who's going to play in games. It's who's going to maximize them and force the coaching staff to reconsider and maybe end up vaulting them over some veterans as the year progresses. Yeah, we saw that
0: with Jahan Dotson a couple of years ago. I mean, the plan was to redshirt him and all of a sudden makes the most of his opportunity. And, you know, looking at this group and looking what they already have on the roster, you know, you you look at guys like Theo Johnson and Tyler Warren, very talented kids. But you've got Pat Fryermuth there. You've got a couple of guys that are older at tight end, and we mentioned uh, running back, of course, with uh, with those guys, uh, with with Journey Brown and Noah Kane in front of them, and uh, defensive tackles. The numbers are huge. So there's there's a couple different places where where numbers will play a factor. I don't really see it being all that different in terms of hey, you know, we were maybe going to redshirt this guy, but now we're going to play him and three or four games. I I think that'll still be the case, even with the reduced numbers. And also you got to take into account uh, injuries. You got to take into account potential positive tests or something like that, where you, we need to fill gaps. And where I see you need to fill gaps is probably on those coverage teams, probably on those, uh, uh, you know, those, those specialist units. So be interesting to see where those guys, like I said, uh, Zariah Fisher's in that group, Tyler Elsdon's in that group, a couple of, I mean, it's usually the linebackers, the safeties, and, and maybe the wide receivers as well. Big guys that can run, sometimes hit, uh, included receivers in there, but uh, th- sometimes can get in there and get in that mix. So we'll see what happens with those guys. I don't see it changing
1: that much, but yeah, it's it's open season. I'm playing those guys. Let's remember, any player who tests positive will sit out for at least 21 days. I mean, in eight games in eight weeks, that, that's, oh, that's almost half the schedule, Sean. So you may very well, depending, I mean, I hope Penn State can avoid this, but it, let's be honest, we're seeing it across college football. Look what Notre Dame's dealing with. You'd love to be able to lean on some scholarship guys and, and you know, all due respect to the walk-ons, not have to, to really elevate them to a spot where they're in games and, and they're faced with these challenges. Uh, this is really something to watch. And, and the depth that you have right now um, in, in terms of being able to play these freshmen without worrying about, about that redshirt is very important to kind of counterbalance the fact that you could be without some important players for a lengthy period of time, whether they're showing symptoms or not. Those are the rules. The Big Ten said if you want football this year, you got to follow these guidelines. So like it or not, 21 days is how long you're going to sit out at least with a positive test.
0: Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how they handle it. It's going to be interesting to see how all of college football handles it. And, you know, you, you may, maybe you see a freshman that breaks through. It's hard to say.
1: Well, we will come back with you next episode uh, with a lot more information because we'll have a chance by then to catch up with these players. been a long time since we were able to do that. We'll hear from the coordinators, from James Franklin. So a lot to dive into in that next episode. But right now we're going to shift gears to, to Chris Hummer from a national perspective. Stick around with us for that conversation. First, a quick commercial break. Chris Hummer has been doing this a long time at 24-7 Sports, has his eye on the national college football scene, does great work as well covering the transfer portal, which is always an interesting topic of conversation. We're going to get into that. A few different player personnel conversations I want to have with Chris while we have him here, because this 2020 year has a chance to rewrite things in a lot of way for the NCAA and how it handles its players and its teams and rosters and all that. But Chris, first off, welcome aboard. It's been about a year since we had you here on the Lions 24-7 podcast, and we have plenty to catch up on.
2: Yeah, thanks for me on. It feels like it's been, like, what, 20 years uh, since I was on this? I feel like every month is about a year right now. I'm glad the Big Ten is going to be playing football this fall, as I'm sure everybody here is, and... Uh, I'm excited that we kind of just get to talk football a little bit, given how heavy it was COVID this offseason.
1: Absolutely. We are too. And it's a tricky spot because here at Penn State and across the Big Ten, whether you view it as the normal preseason camp or not, that's essentially what's about to go on in these next few weeks. Eventually, October 24th, that weekend, we will see Big Ten teams in action. But along the way, other Power Five conferences well underway, SEC now in action. So, Chris, when we look at the biggest storylines of college football so far for those that have played, why don't you catch me up, catch our audience up in case anybody missed things and if they've been kind of focused on Penn State here, what are the storylines that we need to make sure that we don't miss as September comes to an end?
2: I think honestly, first, it's been very sloppy just across the board. You talk to coaches, they have not had the time to prepare, that they normally would. I'm sure Big Ten teams even with a five-week lead-up or an experience that we've seen a lot of special teams mistakes, special teams touchdowns, muff punts, everything's up. Um, the level of play is a little down. I think it's improved as the weeks have gone on, but that's just something college football fans need to be aware of. Um, we've seen upsets happen, too. Oklahoma just lost to Kansas State, and that Kansas State team was missing seven starters. Uh, we saw Texas nearly lose to Texas Tech on the road, and that same Texas Tech team had almost been beaten by Houston Baptist so that just kind of shows you uh where this is fluctuating at and we just saw the defending national champion LSU Tigers lose to Mike Leach in his first game at Mississippi State so we've seen a lot of that Louisiana beat Iowa State Miami's good again somehow I think that's like an interesting storyline as well and it's just it's been a really weird season so far but in a lot of ways it just feels like college football a little 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 wild every Saturday which is great but Sloppy play. And then like we have game cancelizations. I don't know the exact number so far, but I think we're at like 24 total cancelizations so far due to COVID concerns. Notre Dame is still really kind of in the middle of an outbreak. I think they have 23 players uh, either positive or in quarantine right now. So that story is not going away either. So all of those things are sort of hanging over the season. Um, And a team like Houston, which has had four scheduled openers still has not like played a game this season because they've all been canceled. So it's just kind of a piecemeal season thus far.
1: Yeah, you mentioned Miami uh, looks good again. Florida State looks bad again. Uh, <laughs> two teams moving in opposite directions there. And, and a couple things to, to play off of, um, The Texas flirting with disaster in their opener. We're going to talk about that because they were one of the programs ranked ahead of Penn State. In this reshuffle top 25, some voters opted out of, of putting any Big Ten programs or Pac-12 programs. I'm going to get your opinion on that in a moment, but breakout stars so far, names on the rise, guys that maybe we kind of had them in the corner of the peripheral, and very quickly they've taken center stage as names to know early in the 2020 season.
2: Yeah, I think I think you have to start with KJ Costello. He threw for an SEC record, 623 yards on Saturday against LSU. It took one game for him to shatter. Dak Prescott's records, everybody's records in the SEC, kind of the power of the air raid. And I think it's worth noting, I, I think we've all, we're have all we familiar with Mike Leach's quarterbacks in the past, Gardner Minshew, Beth Kingsbury, Graham Harrell, but KJ Costello is far and away the most talented quarterback Mike Leach has ever had. And I think it'll be really interesting to track that as the year goes on. He just makes throws that some of Leach's passers in the past aren't capable of doing on a down-to-down basis. And given the talent around him, guys like Kylan Hill, Terrell Shavers, both former four-star recruits, uh, KJ Costello could be in for a really special season. Kyle Trask obviously balled out on Saturday, Florida's quarterback. Derek King, who I'm sure we'll talk about later. Um, uh, Kyle Trask was Derek King's uh, high school backup, so that'll be an interesting story to follow as well. Um, Derek King's 3-0 at Miami. He's uh, kind of jolted the program a little bit. And then if you want to talk like freshmen or something, Miles Murphy over at Clemson has been the best true freshman in the country. He was leading the country in tackles for loss after two games. Um, you could probably go on for a while in terms of breakout players, but those are just kind of a few at the top of mind right now.
1: KJ Costello did not come off from left field, The guy who was front and center in that 2016 recruiting class. I'm looking at those rankings right now behind Jacob Eason and Shea Patterson, two guys who started in the SEC, ended up leaving the SEC. Mixed results for them. KJ Costello goes from Stanford to Mississippi State. And as you mentioned, just, just torches the defending national champs.
2: Yeah. Um, and he was, he was at one point in his career, like people in Palo Alto were talking about him as like the next Andrew Luck. Right. Because, yeah, he was that kind of recruit for them, for sure.
1: We have seen the transfers uh, one way or the other continue to impact, particularly a quarterback. But really, as 2020 has progressed, I want to get your thoughts. Where do things stand with the transfer portal? How are they trending? Because when we talked to you back in 2019 it was really starting to become something that was prevalent on people's minds. It wasn't really a a foreign concept. They knew what the transfer portal was. They they saw Penn State impacted here locally. The tricky part has been who gets the waiver, who doesn't. And it feels like this year more than ever, that green light has been given. And when it's not, there's a lot of outrage about it.
2: So I honestly, like, I cover the transfer portal for part of my living and I, I could not explain to you how these transfer waivers are approved or how they're not. The NCAA gets very little clarity on these subjects. There's very little transparency um, citing things like FERPA. So there's very little information out there. And when we do hear about the situations in which waivers aren't given, they often seem like pretty egregious. Um, I don't. I, there are so many examples. I think Brock Hoffman and Luke Ford a season ago, both of whom moved to be closer to family members, we denied, but we see a guy like Tate Martell uh, who quite clearly got pushed out due to another quarterback end up uh, cleared at Miami. And we see it time and time again, um, kind of this offseason and Cade Mays uh, had to wait a while. And it's just it's very odd. And I don't think anybody has a clear explanation. I think we're heading towards a transfer exemption. Um, it kind of got pushed aside due to COVID. But I would anticipate next year we will have a one time transfer kind of waiver for everybody so these like waivers get taken off the table um so that should solve that problem but for now it is it's certainly a huge issue but transfers are making a gigantic impact on college football as they have every year uh we mentioned eric king uh he's been really good so far for miami kj costello has been great so far for mississippi state jt daniels is probably about to step in the spotlight this week for georgia uh, Felipe Franks was starting for Arkansas. You could just kind of go down the line. Talia Tagovailoa is going to start for Maryland more than likely. Um, they're just uh, transfer quarterbacks and transfer players across the country uh, playing a pretty big role. And it's just where we're at in college football right now. It's another way to kind of go about roster construction.
1: And then, of course, last year in the college football playoff, three of the four starting quarterbacks end up at their school via transfer and Justin Fields and Jalen Hurts. And, of course, Joe Burrow at LSU – When we look at this recruiting class, and we've talked a lot about it here on the show, Chris, because Penn State has had some struggles getting towards signing day with the complete class. The ramifications of these no visit commitments and just the lack of official visits at any point during the cycle, not in the spring window, not in the fall window. Now we know there will be no opportunities for in-person recruiting before that early signing period in December, which has really become the signing period. Do you think that is going to then turn into just a major exodus eventually at campuses as guys get to campus and maybe it's not what they expected or get to know the coaching staff and maybe they're not who they expected? Do you think that's going to lead on the back end to the transfer portal being even more of a looming issue for college football?
2: Yeah, I think the transfer portal is going to be busy for that reason, as you said. I fully expect a lot of freshmen in that portal pretty quickly. And then also, given that the... uh, eligibility this year has been essentially paused for everyone we're going to have larger rosters than normal and given that there's still going to be 85 scholarships in 2022 they're not adjusting the rules to kind of compensate for the larger rosters you're going to see a lot of kids pushed out so I think you're going to see a lot of people on the portal especially older graduates and you're going to see a lot of young players who committed to a school they might not have done otherwise if they've taken a visit so you kind of combine those things and I think Some really smart programs are going to be saving five to 10 scholarships a cycle to kind of address needs in the portal. And for a team, as you said, like Penn State, that has struggled certainly in 2021, that's an opportunity to fill some holes. And there's nothing wrong with that. We've seen Florida do it quite well under Dan Mullen. They've struck out a couple times some big-time recruits uh, throughout his tenure, but they got a guy like Brendan Cox, a former five-star player from Georgia, who's probably their best um, outside linebacker this season. And he's done that several times at Florida. So it wouldn't surprise me to see some contenders kind of take that route more aggressively than they have in the past.
1: You don't have to remind our Nittany Lions fans audience about five stars ending up at Florida um, after their (laughs) initial spot. Although it didn't work out to to much success for him in in game one, we'll see where it takes him moving ahead. Chris, one other thing uh, that could potentially be impacted, not just in the near future, but long-term in college football because of what we're all seeing happen in 2020. The opt-outs followed by the opt-ins as these conferences have returned to action. We've seen it in the Big Ten. Guys like Rashad Bateman at Minnesota, uh, Ryan Day, Ohio State's coach, confirming that he's got Sean Wade and Wyatt Davis back on board. And and boy, would Penn State fans love to hear that Micah Parsons is, is coming to Happy Valley to play football in 2020. James Franklin has certainly publicly left that door open. But when we're talking about guys who have gone on gone into that process with the agencies and then all of a sudden are back on the practice field in college football that was always just a line you didn't cross in college football and come back from now we're seeing that happen and if these guys are playing a season and impacting the the big 10 title chase i mean is this something that's going to be here to stay And guys being able to change their mind and kind of like what we see with the nba but even in that case you hire an agent and things change
2: yeah it'll be really interesting as you said the uh NCAA basketball side of things, along with the NBA, has had a kind of deal where players are allowed to return to college if they don't hire an agent and they're not drafted. It's a good and bad thing. It really it encourages players to leave early for the draft, like they have the opportunity to do so. They can explore their options. They could kind of go out through the whole draft process and they can come back, which helps their schools technically. But one thing I know talking to college basketball coaches is it also puts you in a really big bind from a numbers perspective, like with the signing day being in December and the signing day being in February and the NFL draft process pushing through April and the combine taking place in late February, like the feedback you're going to get from NFL teams, isn't going to be there in time for coaches to kind of fill those roster holes unless they're coming from the transfer portal. So I think you're going to see some coaches push back against that. Although I'm sure some coaches like, I don't know, Jim Harbaugh is definitely a guy that's going to come out in favor of this. Like you can get a couple of your guys back that don't get drafted early. But it's a a pretty complicated thing. But I do think in some ways Pandora's box has been open this year in that regard. I just, I wonder 2020 has been so odd. I can see people trying to close it back up without much um, kind of pushback, given everything else that's going on in college athletics. But it's certainly an interesting story to track. And the NCAA is being very liberal by allowing these teams to come back probably because they know the PR hit they would take otherwise, but it's, I I don't know what's going to happen in that regard. I'm very curious to find out what we're going to see in the next like couple of years in terms of players being able to come back to school.
1: And College coaches are, are usually very good at turning the page from from one year's roster to the next. You might lose a few guys you didn't expect early to the draft, but you need to get the guys competing to take that starting job, beginning with that first rep and winter conditioning and the first trip into the weight room as a team. It's tough if you leave that door open and the guy walks back in ready to take that starting job back two, three months later after other guys have been working behind him on the depth chart. There's a lot to dig into there for sure.
2: There That's a great go. point. You're, you're very liable to piss off that next four-star who's waiting for his chance.
1: What happened at LSU? We never heard LSU talking about not playing this season. SEC was, was a full force trying to get on the field this fall. Uh, you're the defending national champs. What happened there? There was just such an exodus. Jamar Chase, the headliner, top wide receiver in college football, many believe. But for a program that had games on its schedule, how did they end up flirting with 70 scholarship guys on that roster because of those opt-outs?
2: Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. Um, Jamar Chase, at first, like, I mean, his dad told me he was coming back. I just think it's a really interesting time right now. Agents are in people's ears all the time about this stuff. And that's why I think we saw so many opt-outs early. They were kind of pushing that narrative, trying to get those contracts signed, trying to get them into training facilities where they're less liable to get hurt. So all of that kind of occurred. And then like, LSU lost, I think, the final tally was 17 starters. Um, that's by far the most of any national champion in the last 15 years. I think the most prior to that was 14, and that was that Auburn team, maybe 15, the Auburn team in 2010 that won, I think, like eight games the following season. I just think in retrospect, like, some kind of regression was inevitable. Um, they lost arguably the best quarterback, at least passing quarterback in college football history in a single season. Joe Burrow was incredible last year. They lost Dave Aranda, who's Baylor's head coach now. They lost Joe Brady, kind of the offensive mastermind of that group. Carolina Panthers OC now, two of the best coordinators in college football, also gone. And when you lose that much in an offseason, and this offseason has been very weird. I think there's been some pushback against Ed Orgeron, kind of in his political stances in the locker room. You kind of put all that stuff together, and you get a recipe for a team that just wasn't quite ready to uh, repeat this year. I think LSU is going to be at best the 6-4, and 7-3 team.
1: Sure feels like lightning was caught in a bottle down there in Baton Rouge last year, and they enjoyed it. They milked it. They savored it in the winter. They won the championship, and and now they're left uh, with this. But they go down, and and then you also see Oklahoma. And what a surprise that was during the weekend. Where does that leave us, and where does the college football playoff structure go from here? You've got the Pac-12 not showing up on the scene until the first weekend of November. Uh, We're still almost a month off from seeing Penn State, Ohio State, and the likes hit the field in the Big Ten. What the heck is the committee going to do with this? Brandon Marcello, uh, our colleague, put out there, he thinks this is the year to expand the college football playoff to make sense of everything. What's your take on the situation?
2: I, I have to disagree with Brandon. I've never really thought a college football playoff was necessary in terms of expansion. I just We know every year, and you see that with the playoff results, like almost every year, except for maybe that Ohio State Clemson game last year, there have been blowouts in the semifinal games. I think it's pretty clear most years who the best. Two to three teams are. And I think that's the reason why the playoff expanded. Sometimes there's a very worthy number three seed, but generally in these playoffs, we've seen blowouts in the semifinals. And I don't I've never been a person that thought the number one, number two seed needs to play an extra game and be penalized for having a great regular season. I can kind of see an argument for this year given kind of the haphazardness of these schedules and how different they are across the board. But I still think at the end of the day, Clemson's gonna be in the playoff. We're gonna have Alabama on the playoff, most likely, Ohio State maybe Penn State will be in the playoff, depending on how things shake out. And then you'll have a fourth team either from the SEC, maybe Notre Dame comes through, or maybe the Big 12 kind of gets its stuff together. I personally really do not see a reason to push this out. And I think it's a really predictable way we're going to go about this, despite the unpredictable nature of this season. Like there's going to be a lot of subjectivity given to the college football playoff committee. And I think that's going to be kind of the realm of criticism for them. But I think I would be very surprised at the end of the season if we were not able to identify three to four of the best teams without much question. I think every year we kind of run into questions at kind of that five, six, seven spot, maybe sometimes at number four. But it doesn't we don't push that far out that often. And I don't think the season's going to be any different, despite kind of the crazy nature of it.
1: Well, here at Penn State Athletic Director Sandy Barber, when, when the new schedule was released by the Big Ten, she said there's no guarantees everybody gets to the finish line with those eight regular season games in their pocket. You may see teams have to sit out a week. There are no bye weeks here in the Big Ten schedule, Chris. So we've seen programs like Virginia Tech and, and Notre Dame now where they're kind of piecing together the the puzzle uh, and, and pushing this game back into a different slot. That's not a possibility for the Big Ten. I, I mean, is that some that's something that stood out to me? The eight games in eight weeks and that championship week that follows within the conference leading to a title game? That's nine games in nine weeks. I mean, do you think that's a realistic outcome?
2: I mean, I think it's a realistic outcome for some teams. I'm sure there's going to be a Big Ten team or two who goes throughout without having any cancellations. I, I would be very surprised if the large majority of Big Ten, or the majority of Big Ten teams played a full eight game schedule. Same thing with the Pac-12. The Pac-12 is an even tighter crunch. They have to play seven games in seven weeks to kind of get it through. And that's uh, certainly a disadvantage um, for those kind of teams in terms of the college football playoff. Where I think the Big Ten is advantaged is teams like Ohio State, Wisconsin, and Penn State have those reputations coming into the season as worthy contenders. The Pac-12 is sort of pushing against a different narrative.
1: If we are having college football playoff debates in December, that's awesome. Because that's a win. for yeah. a long time, it didn't look like we were going to get there. So we'll take these debates as long as we can. And and then my question becomes for you, Penn State makes its first playoff appearance if... Dot, dot, dot. I, I guess I'm looking for something a little more complex than they run the table.
2: <laughs> well, I certainly think Penn State needs Sean Clifford to take a step. I, I know quarterback play is the obvious place to go, but Sean Clifford was good last year. I don't think he was great. I think he might have been closer to average than great in a lot of cases. I think that needs to get better. They need to find a way to find some production on the outside at receiver. Obviously got took some hits this season with guys like K.J. Hamler going to the NFL, Justin Shorter transferring to Florida. And I think the new offensive coordinator they're hired they brought from Minnesota, Chiraca. I think I love what he did at Minnesota in terms of kind of the RPO, like zone read stuff they did. I think it's going to be a pretty big shift. But I think his scheme fits Penn State's personnel really well. And Penn State, for what it's worth, has probably the best backfield in the country, in my opinion. I think you really have to lean on that. You have to ask Sean Clifford to make some plays in kind of the RPO play-action game. And if that offense can take a step, I think even without Micah Parsons, given how deep that linebacker group is, Penn State is good enough to be in that mix. I think the question is if they're good enough to beat Ohio State. And the talent gap there is pretty severe. But I think James Franklin has showed over the years he gets his team ready to play Ohio State. It only takes one upset there for Penn State to really push itself firmly in the playoff mix. So I think if all those things go the right way, Penn State has a shot.
1: It's an arms race atop the Big Ten. Penn State, everybody else trying to keep up with Ohio State on the recruiting trail it doesn't help when right now looks like you lose Micah Parsons and Ohio State gets to retain these guys, Justin Fields and Wyatt Davis and Sean Wade. But at this point, it's worth noting Penn State seemed to avoid the mass exodus that some feared big part of that was that the conference actually released a schedule seemingly in the nick of time to, to keep guys like Pat Friermuth on board. Another guy who was being mentioned in that potential opt-out situation was Jason Owe. and you wrote a great story this summer on why Jason is such a compelling talent across college football. A lot of folks, even on our message boards, have scratched their heads at seeing him projected already as a first-round pick, and maybe in the top half of that first round, he started one game last year, finale against Rutgers when Nitor Gross Matos was sidelined, played a lot of snaps as a second team option, but we've talked about it before. You documented it a lot in his story. Has not played a ton of football in his lifetime. What kind of stage is set for Jason Away here in 2020?
2: Without Micah, he's I mean, he's not the best player on this defense by any means. He hasn't earned that right yet or that title, but he has a chance to be a special dynamic pass rusher. And I think I think Jason would probably tell you, I don't know if he's had a chance to speak to the media. Like he knows he needs this season to kind of put some tape on. And he knows that if he has one really good season, he's a guy who could be a top 10 pick. He's that kind of talent. Like your board, I'm sure is very aware of it. He He's what six foot six, 257 runs a four, three, three. I think his shuttle was like something stupid, like a four, one, one with a, like a 37 inch vertical people, his size are not supposed to do any of those things. And he, He does them consistently. He's so explosive on tape, it's not even funny. And I think the reason he's being projected there is if you go look at his tape from last season, while it's inconsistent, while he needs to work on his pass rush moves, you can't teach the way he gets off the ball and you can't teach the way he gets after the passer. Like those are just innate traits that he has that point zero 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 point one percent of even NFL players have. So that's why he's looked upon so highly. And if he has a season in which he can put together seven or eight sacks 10 or 15 tackles for loss i would not at all be shocked to see him like start to creep up into the conversation as a top 16 top 10 pick probably not number one not in this draft not with the quarterbacks that are there but he is just like a freak potentially on the outside uh, outside linebacker defensive end wherever you want to play him in the nfl he can just he can do it all and that's why so many people are so high on him like projectability really matters to these franchises and Jason is a guy where you can quite clearly see what he can be if he reaches his potential.
1: Penn State has not produced a first round defensive pick uh, from their program since 2010. It looks like if, if OA can put the pieces together, they're going to be in a good spot to produce multiple on the defensive yes. side of the football uh, next spring. Two more questions then we'll get you out of here. Big 10, big picture, 14 squads to choose from. I don't think you're going to go Penn State with either of these, but most overrated team in the conference in your mind and most underrated team in the conference?
2: Oh, that's a good question. Overrated. I mean, honestly, I think it's probably Michigan, given everything they lost. It'll be really interesting to see how Joe Milton does at quarterback. I've heard some really great things about him coming out of um, camp, but also like I heard really nice things about Shay Patterson and Josh Gaddis the last two years, and that didn't really pan out that way I'd be very surprised to see Michigan uh, win more what is it an eight game season of the Big Ten I would mm-hmm. be surprised to see them better than five and three this year maybe six and two so I think they're a little overrated but they are in terms of underrated that's a great question Northwestern as a team that could potentially be pretty good this year I'm not saying they're gonna win the Big Ten West or anything but they were atrocious a season ago but Pat Fitzgerald returns almost everybody On that team, they brought in a transfer quarterback from Indiana and Peyton Ramsey, who I think is going to elevate that team in a lot of ways. They have a really, really solid offensive line, even without Rashawn Slater. So I think all of those things work together in concert to allow Northwestern to surprise some people. I'm a pretty big fan of Purdue and Jeff Brown this year as well. I think that team could be really dangerous. I think Nebraska is overrated as it has been the last couple of years. I'm rambling a little bit kind of going through this in my mind, but there are certainly some interesting teams in the Big Ten this year for sure
1: wasn't sure if you might venture toward Indiana, who is going to host Penn State to start this season. They've been a, a bit of a thorn in, in Penn State's side, not resulting in losses for the Nittany Lions, but some really hard-fought games these last few years.
2: Michael um, Penix, when healthy, is really, really spectacular. He is one of the best quarterbacks in the country, not just the Big Ten when he's healthy. So,
1: And that's what Penn State's preparing for defensively for week one. And, and my last question, get you out of here on this. Where we stand now, I guess we're – depending on what program you're looking at, it could be week two, it could be week three, week four. It's negative week three, I guess, here at Penn State and in the Mm -hmm. Big Ten. But as of what you've seen and what you anticipate from the conferences that have not played yet, would love to hear where you stand, who's getting into the college football playoff and who's ultimately going to win the national championship.
2: Uh, My pick at the beginning of the year was Alabama, Clemson, Florida, Texas. Like Obviously, that has to be amended slightly with the Big Ten and the Pac-12 coming into picture. I'm probably dumping Texas and putting Ohio State in that group. Sorry, uh, Penn State fans. Uh, they're, just, they're really good. I, I know i know some people on that staff were super pissed off that this was the year that all this happened because they thought they had a national championship-worthy roster. And in a lot of ways, it could have been even better than what they had last year with Justin Fields, who's going to be a little bit better. So I have to go with those four teams. And I, I think Alabama is the best team in the country, without much question. Um, Mac Jones – I think it's getting kind of derided because he's not Tuatonga Valoa, but if you look at some of the throws he made on Saturday, he was excellent. So if he's playing that way and that defense is good as I think it's going to be, which is a pretty big step from what they were last year, I think I think Alabama is the best team in the country without much question right now.
1: All right. Well, that's where you stand here at the end of September. we got a lot to learn. Chris, uh, we'll, we'll follow your coverage as things unfold. I encourage our listeners to do that as well. I try to go to your stuff and read it just because I always miss a few things on Saturday, and, and you're there to fill in some of those blanks. Chris, thanks as always for joining us for a conversation here in the Lions 24-7 podcast.
2: Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. and I'm super excited about Penn State and Ohio State in Week 2. I think that's going to be one of the best games of the season. And, of course, we are
1: excited as well to get to that Week 2 matchup Halloween First game we'll get a chance to see in Beaver Stadium. In the meantime, a lot to talk about for preparations in the matchup that precedes that one kickoff the weekend of the 24th of October in Bloomington, Indiana. That'll begin the eight-game schedule in the Big Ten for these Nittany Lions. We'll talk to you soon. Got a lot coming your way in the days and weeks ahead on Lions247.com and, of course, right here on the Lions 24-7 podcast.